Well, today is the last uh, Sunday in our summer parables series as we look at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, 9 to 14. You can go there in your Bible, open it up, or your Bible app. If you don't have a Bible, let me know. I want to give you one, okay? We will. And uh, the, the scriptures in a moment will be on the screen, as, as most of you know. Uh, and, and thank you to each one of you who are part of the teaching team, who shared throughout these last weeks um, any messages you may have missed in the summer here. As always, you can catch up with at Eaglemont, uh, our, our Eaglemont uh, YouTube channel. So, so take advantage of that. As has been said already in this series, and as, as many of you know, the, the, the parables are, I mean, we, we often see Jesus using simple, tangible, physical things to illustrate deep, significant spiritual truths and to, and to show us how he wants us to live as his representatives in our, our world, in, in our broken world. And there's a lot going on in this chapter of Luke's uh, gospel, Luke 18. Uh, there's a couple of parables that Jesus shares in this chapter. Jesus blesses the children here. He has a very direct conversation with a rich young ruler. He heals a blind man. I mean, it's, it's an action-packed chapter, and you may want to read the whole chapter sometime later today. But, but let's read the portion we're walking through for the next few minutes uh, this morning. Jesus' parable in Luke 18, 9 to 14 reads this way. Luke says, writes, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable story. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, you know, you know, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give all I get or give a, a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, I tell you, Jesus said, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Can I, can I just ask this morning, as, as I hope and as I hope I always do, and I, I hope you always do as we come together and, and give our attention to, to God's Word and the teaching from there, but, but today, again, can I ask that all of us open our heart wide open to whatever it may be that the Holy Spirit wants to say to us from this passage, from this parable of Jesus. Let's, let's commit Join me, would you, in, in committing in, this, in these moments to do that. And so let's pray that. Lord, we humbly ask that you would open your word to our heart and mind and that we would open our heart and mind to your word in Jesus' name. If you've been a serious-minded 
Christian, uh, Christ follower, uh, and I'm not assuming that you are. And if you're not, if you're exploring or if someone dragged you here today because you're visiting on vacation from Saskatchewan and they go to church and they said, you can stay with us, but you're going to church. With I, I don't know the story, but um, welcome, if that's you, welcome. And uh, we, um, we, we look at uh, God's word together with this, hopefully always, as I said, with this posture of of openness, recognizing it as ultimate truth. And in a culture that's pushing back on, on, on much of what's in here, what needs to win in the life of the Christ follower? Right? No matter what the outcomes might be. Um, but that's, that's another, another message for, for another time. But if you've been a serious-minded Christ follower for any length of time, I'm, I'm sure that you've heard or you've sensed the Holy Spirit whisper to you at, at times like I have. Things like, why, why do you look down on people so quickly and maybe so often? Or, or maybe you've heard from that still small voice as the Old Testament references the, the, the whisper of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've heard him say, there's pride right now in your heart. Do you, do you see it, Marlo? There, okay. Maybe you've, if you've been a serious-minded Christ follower for any length of time, you've likely heard those whispers. Um, why, why are you trusting in yourself? Your resources are, are pretty limited. I've got all you need. Why are you trusting in yourself? As Christ followers, we need to invite and listen for, have our spiritual radar on for, for, for those words of correction and, and loving direction. We do. And, and again, that's what I, I hope will be the case this morning. So, yeah, let's be open to the questions that God may direct our way uh, as, as he wants to do in all of us. Uh, if you're like me, you need it. That, that ongoing inner, inner remodeling, let's say of our heart and attitude. You see, this parable is dealing with far more than uh, uh, merely the content of the prayers of two different individuals. It's dealing more with the content of the heart of these two different individuals. I mean, the verbalized prayers that we read are simply um, reflections of what's in, in the heart of these, of these people. The New Living Translation puts it this way, that Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness. Definitely a reference to the religious leaders of the day, Jewish religious leaders in the crowd, and, and, and likely others as well, those who essentially were saying, even to God, look how good I am. And so to get to the core of his teaching about about pride and humility, Jesus tells a little story about two men. Verse 10, he says, so two guys go up to the temple. I don't know, it's kind of warped thinking probably, but is that Jesus' version of, so these two guys walk into a bar? <laughs> probably not, I'm, I'm sorry. Two guys go up to the temple 
And through this story, Jesus hopes to remind his listeners then and now about the, the, the heart DNA and the spiritual posture that God wants to see in his followers. And so he lets us see into the prayer lives and into the hearts of two individuals. First of all, there's, as you know, as, you read, as we read, the Pharisee. Pharisees. They were, oh, they were religious. They, they kept the law. And, and harshly judged those who neglected to do so. They prided themselves on how, how righteous and how good they were. They saw most everyone else as ignorant sinners to be despised and to be sneered at. You see, it's, it's possible. It's possible to be religious and yet not a genuine loving Christ follower. The two are not necessarily the same. So there's a Pharisee, and then there's a, the tax collector. Now, for most in the crowd that day, um, the Jews, hearing a reference to a tax collector would cause them to feel, well, uh, numbers of things, uh, certainly not the least of which uh, would be disgust, even be feeling a betrayal. Of a, of a fellow Jew. And this is why tax collectors, as, again, as many of you know, worked for the, the, the foreign Roman government who dominated the, the Jews. And tax collectors were infamous for collecting the, well, of course, the re required tax, plus more for themselves. And they were permitted by Rome anything that they could squeeze out of the people, and they squeezed, they could keep. And so they were... <laughs> Let's just say tax collectors were not on the invitation list for the parties that the average Jew hosted. So let's look at what came out of their mouths as they were in the temple during prayer time. Pharisees' prayer, verse 11-12. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Wow. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And he could have, well, could have gone on and on. And, uh, in his mind, at least, I'm sure he did. I mean, think about this. The religious leader approaches the almighty and perfect God of the universe, boasting about his own character and, uh, and, and contrasting himself, or at least his blurry perspective of himself with other types of people, those people who don't measure up. Have you ever met someone like that? Don't say their name. Or, or worse yet, maybe, I don't know, maybe you've been at, at work, you've been put on a team with somebody like that who's just completely convinced that, 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 that they're better than anybody, everybody else. Well, this is who Jesus is talking about. This, this Pharisee is that on steroids. And his prayer, if, if we can call it that, is, is just oozing with self-righteousness and, and prideful expressions, which shows what's in his heart, as we've already said. There was my junior high voice that came out there. Did you catch it? Um, and, and let's remember that any one of us are, any one of us, susceptible to pride growing within our hearts, which is why God warns so much, says so much. If you know the word of God at all, so many references to the dangers of pride and how much God hates it. And is it any wonder? The very first sin that polluted Lucifer as an angel in heaven, 
and got him and the other angels on his side kicked out of heaven. Pride. I should be on the throne of God in heaven, Lucifer said. Ah, uh, no. It's no wonder God hates pride. This Pharisee is building his case for the fact that God is very fortunate to have him, you know, to have someone like him. And there was nothing, as you, as you observed, I'm sure, there's nothing close to a, a, a petition in this prayer, which is a petition, of course, just a, an appeal for help. Why would a guy who thinks he's got it all and is all that, why would, why would he ask for help? That would be, that would kind of go against his prideful posture, wouldn't it? And he, he was self-sufficient. He was good enough all on his own, or so he thought, to be accepted by God. Wow, how, again, how, how pride can warp our perspective. And you've probably been there as I have. We should have, or he, he should have, this, this Pharisee should have known and, and sought to model his Jewish forefather David's approach in prayer and, and humility shown in Psalm 51. Psalm of repentance. You've probably read it and prayed it yourself if you've been a Christ follower for any length of time, as I have, in, in, in humble repentance after, after his great sin, David, this prideful Jewish religious leader's forefather modeled for him. He, he didn't dial into it or wasn't living it, but in humble repentance, David prayed these things in that psalm. Have mercy on me. Oh God, we need God's mercy. Cleanse me, David said, from my sin. He said, God, please create in me a clean heart. Powerful prayers. Apparently the Pharisee, who knew the Old Testament, didn't factor those things into his M.O. of living there are many things that we must guard against and guard our heart against, but again, a biblical case could be made that pride is the biggest sin to keep at bay. And again, that, well, that's because pride causes us to be blind to our true spiritual condition and, and the depth of our need for God in our lives, which itself opens the door for all kinds of sin to potentially get a foothold in our lives. That's what pride does. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Everything that's here will flow out. Having a perspective that is condescending toward others is an attitude that's fueled by pride, which, again, God hates and wants to root out. And the Pharisee's prayer was heavy on comparing himself with bad people. And the tax collector was just one example from that group in the Pharisee's mind. This religious leader is just literally looking down in a condescending way on other, other imperfect human beings rather than looking up to God and comparing himself with his character. Oh, that would be, that's a different comparison, isn't it? I mean, had... Had he truly turned his heart and his spiritual eyes to gaze upon God in all of his holiness, he would have seen himself for who he really was. Um, it's just his point of comparison, other people, was off, which made his self-assessment even more skewed. It's easy to do sometimes. 
Jesus is the standard. And we're not to compare ourselves with others. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 makes that clear, and you can read that on your own. In, in his book, Autobiography of God, uh, a book about the parables, uh, Dr. Lloyd Ogilvie says this, God has given us the only acceptable basis of comparison, Jesus Christ. Suddenly, our self-righteous glances at the less fortunate or those caught in the web of compulsive sin are not acceptable. Who could possibly measure up? No one. But that realization makes way for the possibility of prayer and for the possibility of God's grace. I can't do it on my own, but that's okay. That leads us to the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ did it all for us. And by his spirit and his word, wants to help grow our character as we walk in a humble posture before our God. Pharisee. Then there's the tax collector, his prayer, verse 13. Uh, but the tax collector stood at a distance, uh, we read earlier. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Many of you know it. Throughout the Gospels, we regularly see the tax collectors and the sinners together. And tax collectors typically were that. Sinners, uh, like all of us. But it appears that God was doing a work in the heart of this particular tax collector. Very cool. Now, being a Jew, he also went to the temple to pray, as we read. And, and, and these descriptive statements about his prayer do indicate that there was a genuine work of God going on. First, it says, there's three things. He stood at a distance. Interesting. I mean, maybe a little conjecture here, but it's very possible that this was an indication of, a, of an attitude of humility that we see evidence of in other ways, but that, that, that he had a sense that his personal unworthiness caused him to just take it easy, to not stand too close to God, you know. He stood at a distance. He was reaching out, but, but, but he stood at a distance. Interesting. You see, uh, recognizing, our, or recognizing that we are unworthy to draw near to God is precisely the way that we get near to God. James 4 in the New Testament, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's what it says. He doesn't force himself on you. And that's a good thing. He loves you so much, but he doesn't force himself on you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near. And then Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit and sometimes crushed by their own sin and choices. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there today. Oh, there's hope. If that's you, there's hope. There's healing. There's, there, there, there's, there's forgiveness. There's life. God comes close to those who are humbled by the impact of their own sin. And also I think of Paul's words in his letter to the church in Philippi in uh, Philippians 2. Key words, he stresses that the attitude of humility is a reflection of the attitude of Jesus who most definitely humbled himself, didn't he? When he came from heaven to take on human flesh and to live in this sin-marred world, he showed humility 
the God of the universe. What a, what a huge display of humility. I mean, Jesus existing from eternity past, yes, because he's God in his character and his nature, but coming and clothing himself in, in humanity so that he could be the bridge between human beings and a holy and perfect God that we could never get to on our own. Secondly, the tax collector says it would not even look up to heaven. Would not even look up. What's that? Well, think about Jesus. Many times in the Gospels we see him praying to his heavenly Father. And, and, and what do we read? Uh, often we see him uh, looking up. We see he lifted up his eyes. He looked up to heaven, to his heavenly Father when he prayed. Now, this man could not at this point bring himself to do so because he, he knew he was far from holy like Jesus. And again, he was showing his awareness of his sinfulness and his humility before God in this. It's like, it's like a little child who knows uh, that, that he's been found out for something that he's done wrong. Uh, a child with a soft conscience, at least. They don't look up, right? They, they, know, they're, they know they're guilty. But, but God would, would cup the, the, that child's face in his hands and say, I forgive you because the penalty for your sin was fully paid when I died on the cross. And so you can look up into the eyes of your heavenly Father now without fear of punishment, without a hint of, uh, without a hint of shame because you're forgiven. You're truly, fully forgiven and free to walk in relationship with a holy, loving God. Oh, wow. That's the good news of the gospel right there. Thirdly, it says that he beat his chest. Now, for Tarzan, that was a sign of dominance, right? But not for this guy. No, it meant something different. It communicated Obviously, his deep remorse over his sin. Regret over his sin. This despised tax collector is the one who, who used the exact same phrase as David did in, again, in Psalm 51, David's prayer of confession. God, have mercy. God, have mercy on me. And if you, if you, if you say that, he will. What is mercy? Mercy. Grace and mercy, what are those? Well, I heard this many years ago and it stuck with me and I didn't have this in my notes. Let's see if I can pull it out. Grace is God's manifestation of his love for us whereby we receive what we do not deserve. Forgiveness. Life with relationship with him, all those things. Mercy is the manifestation of God's love for us whereby... We don't get what we do deserve because of our sin. Hmm. Huh. Two sides of the same coin. What do we deserve? Sinners deserve separation from God. God declared that that would be the case before sin existed. Humanity knew, Genesis 2.17, if you eat from this one measly little tree, you'll die. Die, die means separation.
His prayer, this tax collector, his prayer was one who, is one, is, is, is a prayer that we all need to be willing to pray regularly. Prayer of humility, of desperation even, and certainly of dependence on God for everything. And especially our right standing and relationship with God. So between these two men, who was it who was justified before God? Verse 14, first part of verse 14. And, and what does that mean? And why is it important? Why, why does it matter? Well, about this particular verse, the, the, exposit, the expositor's commentary had a good thing to say. The modern reader will probably not feel the impact of this story to the extent a first century listener would. Because we already think of the fair, that people that are, have an under, a biblical understanding he's talking about here. He says, we already think of the Pharisees as hypocrites. Because they, they are. Jesus calls them out, right? And we think of the tax collectors as those who received the grace of God. But Jesus' original hearers would have thought, on the contrary, that it was the devout Pharisee who deserved acceptance by God. Right? The, the regular Jews listening to this story would have viewed the Pharisee as the one in right standing with God. I mean, look at how religious they are. And the regular Jew would have viewed the tax collector as the dirty, rotten scoundrel. The one who, you know, God would for sure cast aside. I mean, because look at what they do. Look how they live. The story of Jesus illustrates that God's perspective, ah, depending on the heart and the, 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 the choices of individuals to respond or not, of course, but, but God's perspective is, is different than ours. God sees what we don't so he can forgive who we wouldn't. Grace of God is amazing. And Jesus makes it clear that it's the, the posture of the heart that determines the outcome spiritually, right? In verse 14, the beginning of the verse, Jesus clarifies for his listeners, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other Pharisee, went home justified before God. Justified before God. Big theological term. Huh. Legal term as well. God, as the, the holy and perfect judge of the universe, cannot sweep sin, just merely sweep sin under the carpet. No. And, and yes, the God of the Bible is love, but he's also a God of justice. As a matter of fact, he can't truly be a God of love if he doesn't care about justice. And his justice requires the payment of the penalty for sin by somebody. And it's either all of us pay it ourselves, and that's not a good scene, or the Father sends the Son, and the Son goes willingly and steps in as a substitute and atones for my sin. Oh, man. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Pastor and theologian N.T. Wright gives a brief but good description of what this word justification means. He says, it's when the judge finds in one's favor at the end of the case. Yes. Hmm. 
Have you allowed God to rule in your favor as he ushers you into a relationship with him by your choice? By saying, God, I want you to be the forgiver of my sin and the leader of my life. And he's right there. And so when we humble or when we're humble enough to admit we need God's grace and forgiveness and then choose to trust what Jesus did on the cross to pay our sin debt, the righteous judge of the universe rules in our favor. Justification. That's incredible. And in all of this, humility gets us there. Recognizing our sin, recognizing our inability to deal with it so that we can enter into a relationship and personal relationship with God here and now and into eternity. Humility gets us there. Verse 14, the last part of verse 14, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I want you to watch a a funny little video clip where uh, humility was lacking and pride came before a fall as Proverbs 16, 18 says. Racing to go, and Tuchlik is sprinting flat out now to try and keep these Belgians at bay. Oh, no. He thinks he's won. No, no, no. No, it's one lap to go. It's one lap of racing to go. No, he hasn't heard it. It's one lap of racing to go, and he thinks he's won the world title. And the rebound of Richardson. Still an opportunity with a minute to play. Take my word for it. There's a moral to this story. Yeah, it looked like a coronation for Tanche Pepio. He's getting the crowd. He wants the crowd to cheer his performance. And at the end, he gets pipped. He gets pipped by Marin Simon of Washington. And you just can't do this kind of stuff, Lewis. You can. And you know, you see his face, and you know no one has to say anything. They don't have to explain it to him. He'll never make that mistake again. Another look. Oh, wow. That is so sad. Megan Rutledge put in such an awesome race. But it's one mistake that cost you, and that was a big mistake for Megan Rutledge. I'm sorry. The pain. Oh, do you feel for them? Ah, silly little reminder. Humility to the end matters. I guess the video could be a visual of what Proverbs 11 verse 2 says. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. (laughs) Literally it says that. But with humility comes wisdom. Probably good to hold off on the celebration until you get across the finish line. Isaiah 57. The high and lofty one who lives in eternity says, I live in in, in the high and holy place. Where is that? the high and holy place. The rest of the verse tells you. With those whose spirits are contrite and humble. That's not self-abasement. 
That's not being, you know, calling yourself down like, like we can sometimes do. It's not thinking less of yourself, I, put, I heard someone say, but thinking of yourself less. <laughs> In attempting to justify himself before God, the Pharisee short-circuited the only possibility of receiving God's gift of justification. Because pride always leaves us unfulfilled because we have nothing of eternal value to offer ourselves. On the other hand, humility opens the floodgates of the, the heart and resources of God toward us. It's the basic ingredient of any prayer that God will respond to. So my friend, where are you at in this in terms of the, the attitude, the posture of your heart? I'm asking the same question and was as I was preparing this message of myself, just so you know. Would you, say, would you say that you're living more like the self-righteous Pharisee these days? Or, or are you experiencing the cultivation of a heart of humility like the tax collector displayed? Reflect on that. Think about that. I encourage you to. It's an important question. And so as we close, I, 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 want, I want the takeaway today for all of us to simply be that we honestly evaluate our heart attitudes to commit to to root out any seed of pride any hint of pride and to commit to do all we can to cultivate this 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 christ-like character of humility in our lives that's it that's it in response to the teaching of jesus today it's crucial that we do so crucial for our not just our spiritual survival, but our, but our spiritual flourishing and growth. And, ju and just to clarify our understanding of that word, again, humility is not, you know, that we, we have this connotation that, 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 that is not accurate. It's, it's, it's a posture of openness and a recognition of, yeah, my weaknesses, my failures, my sin. Not that I, not that I, it, uh, humility doesn't put us in, in, in that zone to, to where we're just kind of beating, uh, beating ourselves up. No, 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 no. That's not it. That's not humility. Humility is just a, a recognition, honest recognition. Uh, uh, something that God sees. So we're not hiding anything if we try to hide it. We're not hiding from God the truth about who we are at our core. That the Bible makes clear and our experience shows that we're sinners. We need God's forgiveness. Humility lets us see that we need God's forgiveness. And that's a good thing. As many of you know. And it's so, it's, it's so much easier to identify pride in others, isn't it? Or, or, or what we view it to be pride. It may or may not be the case. Well, maybe, but... But, but far more difficult to identify it in ourselves for some reason. <laughs> so please commit to this process of discovery. And you might want to just note these things quickly. Talk to God about this, would you? As, a, as, as the takeaway, as the, as the homework uh, from this passage. And you might want to read it again. You can write down so you don't forget Luke 18. Talk to God. 
ask him to reveal where to you, to reveal to you, to whisper to you, to direct you, to bring thoughts to your mind about where pride is showing itself in your life and then repent of it and ask God to forgive you and he will. And then secondly, read every scripture you can find about pride and humility. Go to uh, BibleGateway.com. Search word, pride, proud, humility, humble. You'll have some reading. Just take it in. Take God's word in. See what he says about this. Okay? Talk to God. Read scripture. And talk to a trusted friend who knows you. Who, who, who can be honest with you to help identify how, how they see. Now, again, you, you receive these words, these, this input from other people who are imperfect. So it's not the be-all and end-all. But God often uses charactered Christ followers in our lives to sharpen us. Oh, the Bible uses that imagery, doesn't it? You know, as iron sharpens iron, so friends do that for one another. I'm not sure what this meant. That could mean other things. Talk to a trusted friend and and ask them to give you input if they would be so courageous and, and, and promise, promise them and commit to not get offended by what they might say. Okay? Tell them that. Speak into my life. Is there areas, is there any, any little hint of pride that you see in, in how I live my life? Okay? Those three things. God help us. Help us in this. If, if you've never committed your life to Christ personally, it doesn't matter if you've been in church first time today or all your life, that's not the question about how we know God personally. Oh, church is a very important thing, as you'll hear in the fall when we do a three-week series entitled, actually, Why You Need a Church. It's a biblical thing. But it's not going to church that makes us a Christ follower that has and possesses the the gift of God's grace of, of, of eternal life. It's saying... Being humble enough to say, I recognize I need God. I'm, I'm separate from God. I was, the Bible says we're born separate from God because of our sin. God, I want you to be. Jesus, I want you to be the forgiver of my sin and the leader of my life. I surrender to you. I surrender to you. You know best. You love me most. I'm going to follow you from this day on and into eternity with you. If you want to receive that gift, you can pray something like this. Bow in prayer. Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you that you love me so much, Jesus, that you came to die for me and take upon yourself my penalty for sin. I thank you. I receive that gift of eternal life that you offered, that you made possible because of your death on the cross and your resurrection. I confess you as the Lord and leader of my life, as the forgiver of my sin. And I want to walk with you in relationship with you as your word says I can. Help me to grow. In this new relationship, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.